Ephesians chapter 6. Go ahead and be turning there. Ephesians chapter 6. I, I don't know about you guys, but I have been so extremely blessed by studying the book of Ephesians together. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But uh, I told you when we started this, man, I think it was back in the summer of 2019. I, I told you that Ephesians is my favorite book. Uh, chapter 2 is my favorite text in all of scripture. And so even though I've, I've read through it multiple times and studied it multiple times, the spirit has taught me so much as we've been going through it these together these last few months. And so I'm, I'm grateful for it. Some of the things that I've learned, I've learned afresh the depth of God's love for me in Christ from the very first whispers of salvation to the day I breathe my last. It's all of God. It's all of him from beginning to end. It's for the praise of his glory. And I've learned what it looks like to put off the old self and put on the new self that's characterized by holiness and characterized by righteousness. I've learned better what it means to love my wife because I understand God's love for me better. I've learned how to better to train up and discipline my kids so that one day they might transfer their obedience of me to obedience to their savior. Last week, we started talking about the battle. This is part two. The summer of last year, we would have never known we would be here today. With everything that's going on in the world, with everything that's happening, and look where God has us in Scripture. Let this be another evidence of God's sovereignty to us as his people. Uh, Paul tells us who the enemy is here, and we talked a little bit about that last week. It is Satan, and he is cunning, and he is characterized by uh, deceitful schemes, and it is a fight to resist him. As strong as we are, it's not a battle that we can fight in our own strength, and so we have to stand firm against Satan, equipped with what? God's armor. These things that God has given us by his spirit. And so remember a few weeks ago, I talked about how you can't be filled up with something unless something else leaves. You know, if you have a glass full of water and all of us, I'd say are a glass full of water and you want, you say you want more of the spirit in your life. Guess what has to come out for more of the spirit to go in? More of you has to come out for more of Christ to be put in. So if you are being filled with the Spirit, you have to be less filled of yourself. Does that make sense? So if you say you want to go on into battle in the Lord's strength and not your own, then you have to lay down your own pride and you have to lay down your own strivings and everything that causes you to rely on yourself, you have to give it up. As often as you pick up the armor, you give that stuff up. Put off those things and enter the battle with faith, not fear, not self-reliance. In verses 14 through 17 that we'll look at today, we're going to look at the pieces of the armor and see how they're not only connected with who Christ is, but also with what Paul has already said about them in his letter and in the Old Testament. Next week, we'll finish the book of Ephesians together. And the week after that, we're going to start a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to start into that, and that as well is fitting for our times. Everything is vanity, it says. Because we don't know our end. So let's read our text together. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read verses 10 through the end of the chapter together again. I'm reading from the ESV. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also so that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray together one more time. Lord, we thank you for this this love that's mentioned here at the very end. It's uncorruptible, it's incorruptible, because it is from you, and your love never fails. It's never adjusted by anything in this life. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. Lord, as we continue on this morning, I pray that you would speak and that we would be listening. In Christ's name, amen. It's appropriate today with our text and the day and age that we are to just remind us, and this is at the very top of your notes, this is so fitting, remember what Paul is saying here. There's, there's zero hint of fear in what Paul is saying here. There's no need for us to fear in what happens in this life because we know that the battle, the war has already been won. It's been won on the cross And it's been one in the empty tomb. And so there's no fear in what Paul is getting at here. Instead, he says, faith should be our response because we know the end of the story, brothers and sisters. We know the real victor here. It's not a virus. It's our God. The only way to stand against the devil's schemes, the only way to do any kind of spiritual battle day by day with the forces of evil is to be clad, to put on the Lord's armor in the Lord's strength. This is not our stuff that we put on. It is gifts from God. And so we use the tools that God gives us in order to stand firm against the devil. And look at the first thing in verse 14 that Paul mentions here. He mentions the belt of truth. Paul touches on the idea of truth no less than six times in the book of Ephesians. So truth is mentioned at least six times in this short book alone, which illustrates something that I hope is pretty obvious for us as Christians. Truth is essential. Truth is vital. Truth is vastly important. 
Now, it's easy to say we know this and then just to kind of keep moving right along. But truth is foundational for a Christian because God never lies. Satan does, but God doesn't. So here's here's a, a difficult but telling question. When we are not being truthful, when we are stretching the truth, when we are exaggerating or when we're just telling flat out lies, who are we acting more like? God or the devil? Is that what we want to be known for? I certainly hope not. Paul has already told us back in chapter 4, verse 21, he says the truth is where? It's in Jesus. Jesus himself claims this very thing. You know the verse in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And just before that, in John 8, he says this. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? It's going to set you free. If Jesus is the truth, and if the truth is what sets us free, then fastening on this belt of truth means living out the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel every day. It means girding yourself up with truth, not lies, not exaggerations, not little white lies that don't seem to hurt anybody. Is it true or not? If it's not true, it's of the devil. It means the truth is more important to us than what lying about something could do for us. Does a lie ever get us out of trouble? Yeah, sometimes it does. For a moment. For a little while. But it doesn't just stop there. I don't know if you guys have seen the VeggieTales movie about the big lie. Anybody? And Larry Boy is in there. Yeah, and he saves the day. The lie just grows. And it's so appropriate for, for, for life, isn't it? We understand how that goes because when you tell a lie, it makes it easier to tell the next one. And then when you've told the next one, it just gets easier and easier until it spins out of control. And sometimes we get to the point where we can't even tell what's true anymore. And we need the rock-solid foundation of God's Word and His people to bring us back to the truth. The truth is paramount. It is important. If you are there, if you are stuck in a web of lies, let me encourage you this morning with the truth that there is freedom from that. There is freedom from that. And you know where? We've just talked about it. It's found in Christ. There's freedom from our sin and our lies found in Jesus Christ. But we have to be honest with the Lord. Because if you keep up this facade that what we're lying about is really the truth, you're going to get in some hard ways. You need to be honest with the Lord. And you need to be honest with those who love you. There are people in this church that love you, but you have to be honest with them. God will grant us freedom when we cling to the truth. So preach the truth of the gospel to yourself and then live it out every day for everyone to see. And man, isn't this displayed in what Paul has just gotten done talking about? In our marriages, with our kids, in our workplaces, are we living out the truth or are we clinging to lies? Keep going, verse 14. Paul's next thing is the breastplate of righteousness. When Paul references righteousness here, I don't think he's referring to the righteousness that we're given at the moment of salvation because you don't have anything to do with that. 
That righteousness is given or imputed to us the moment that we are saved and believe. That righteousness has everything to do with God's sovereign choice and the comprehensive effect of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so I think here Paul is referring to how Christians are supposed to walk through this life in righteousness. He told believers back in chapter 4 verse 24, he says, put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what the new life looks like now. True righteousness, true holiness. And Paul isn't talking just about showy Christianity here. You guys know what I mean when I say that. Paul's not talking about hypocrisy, how a person acts one way on a Sunday, says they believe certain things, and then they go out into the world and you would have no clue that they just said those things on Sunday by how they behave. Paul here is talking about practical Christianity, not showy Christianity, practical Christianity, right living. How do you go out from these doors and live out there? That's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, put on the qualities that prove who your real master is, that prove that Christ is your real master. Are you putting off the things of the flesh more and more? Are you putting away the things that Paul's already talked about in chapter 4? Are you putting away anger? Are you putting away bitterness? Are you putting away impurity and the lust of the flesh? Are you putting on kindness? Are you putting on humility? Are you putting on forgiveness? Are you putting on love? See, putting on the breastplate of righteousness is putting on the new self more and more. It's living out our new identity in Christ. Next, in verse 15, Paul's next piece of the armor is the gospel shoes of peace. I liked how a couple other translations said this than the ESV. You may have these on your, in your Bible. In the NIV, it says this way. It says, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In the King James, it says, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We've got Bibles in the back that we give to kids at Awana who are just learning to read or aren't great readers or just people who are maybe learning from another language. These these Bibles, the New International Revised Version is specifically for ESL, English as a Second Language Learners. And in that version, it says this. It says, wear on your feet what will prepare you to tell the good news of peace. I like that. Wear on your feet what will prepare you to tell the good news of peace. What's Paul getting at here? I think it's actually pretty simple. Always be ready to share the gospel. Always be ready to share the gospel. Strap onto your feet whatever allows you to quickly and easily share the gospel. And what message does the gospel contain? One of peace. Look back with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. At least six times in just these five short verses, Paul contrasts peace and hostility. Why? Because at the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about how 
every one of us is hostile towards God. Every single person are dead in their trespasses and sins and hostile towards God. But now, because of the love of God and his mercy through the sacrifice and blood of Christ, those who are hostile and far off towards God have been brought near. By Jesus Christ as our peace. Those without Christ have no hope. It says just a few verses before that in chapter 2. We have no hope and are without God in the world today. But Christ has come and preached peace to those who are far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Glory be to God. What message of peace that we have for the world. And what a better time to be ready to share that message, brothers and sisters. This isn't necessarily the solution for world peace. It's even better. This is the answer to peace with a righteous and holy God. That's what really matters. There's a very good chance that we will never see peace in this world in our lifetime. But we can be assured that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ and the blood of his sacrifice. That's the message of peace that we have. We are reconciled to God and enjoy peace with God through the death of Jesus. That's the message of peace. And it's weird to think that peace comes by the shedding of blood, but that was God's plan. And he's done it for your sake and for mine. And everyone who's been reconciled to God through Jesus now has the same mission that Paul is getting at here with the shoes of peace. We have the same mission. It's this. Go and tell others about how to have peace with God. Next is the shield of faith in verse 16. Paul uses this phrase. He says, in all circumstances. I think that's interesting. In all circumstances. What do you think that means? In all circumstances, right? That was a trick question. So this is not confusing language. There's no special word in the Greek here for this. He just says, in all things, exercise faith. In all things, exercise faith. And it real, really boils down to just this one simple question that I think every one of us needs to ask ourselves today. Do you trust God? That's the question. Do I trust God? Do I, do I trust Him in faith? Or do I wrestle for control so that I can think I have some kind of power here? Do I trust God? When we lie... To improve our situation, we are not trusting that God honors and blesses the truth or that he can work this thing out. When we steal, we are proving that we don't believe God's really going to provide for our needs. We take it into our own hands. When we give in to lust, we show our disbelief that God can actually truly make us happy and fulfilled. If we truly believed God and his word, we would take up the shield of faith in every circumstance, in all circumstances. This isn't some shield like this dinky little frisbee either that you got to get, you know, curl up behind. This is the kind of shield that we talked about last week at the end. These big, like almost Roman shields that are almost like the size of a door and they lock together. This is a, a big, powerful, impenetrable shield that we're given. And if you think back to what we talked about last week, they need to protect us from some things. The schemes of the devil. And what else? What does he shoot? Flaming arrows. We have the shield of faith to stop the flaming darts of the enemy because he is crafty. He doesn't just attack us with standard weapons. Brothers and sisters, he fights dirty. 
And I'm not saying that to be silly or funny. It's, it's real. He does it because he wants to destroy our marriages. He wants to destroy our children. He wants to destroy this church. He wants to destroy people made in the image of God. And Peter tells us that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is no joke. I mean, why do we think that sin is now so accessible? It's, it's always been to some degree, but now it is really accessible. Because the enemy fights dirty. It's on every screen that you own, constantly. It's on the bus, it's in the office, it's in our homes. Sin is so accessible. And you know what? Most of the time, we just invite it right in. It appeals to our fleshly desires. And if we haven't learned to wrestle against the evil one and his schemes effectively, we just usually open the door wide open for it. But since we're becoming, hopefully, increasingly more and more aware of the spiritual battle that's happening, we should be relying more and more on the strength and power of God and his spirit to resist. So this shield protects us from the flaming darts of the evil one, and it's all done by faith. Do you trust God? Next, in verse 17, after the shield is the helmet of salvation. Practically, what does a helmet protect? What is in your head that needs protecting? Your your brain. You got it. Your brain. Because that controls just about everything. So the helmet of salvation is important. Sometimes, though, Where is the fiercest battle being fought? Right there in our minds. Even in this, in what we're experiencing now as a nation, sometimes the fiercest battle is happening in our minds, fighting anxiety, fighting fear, fighting symptoms that we may be projecting on ourselves because we're seeing them everywhere else. And so the, the enemy is fighting dirty again, and he's getting here. And so the helmet of salvation is a defense for us as believers to stop this. The enemy would love to make you question God's love for you. He would love to make you question the fullness of Christ's sacrifice or even the permanency of your salvation, to doubt those things. He would love to make you doubt that. To resist the devil, though, we must be assured of our salvation. We must be confident in it. And brothers and sisters, you can be if your hope is set in the right place. So where is your hope in salvation? Is it in the consistency of your performance as a believer? Because, man, you can easily get stuck there. Well-meaning believers get stuck in performance-based Christianity all the time. That's not where our confidence comes from. Because the moment that we screw it up, our confidence goes out the window. It can't be in that. I cannot be so confident in my own performance that that's all I believe in. You can't be either. Instead, our confidence should be in the finished and perfect work of Christ. Go to God every day and be reminded of the great object of your faith. Not you and your performance, Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. It's not in your preacher. It's not in a church. It's not in your best friend. It's not in your spouse. It has to be in Christ. He is our assurance. So if you're trusting in yourself, when the enemy comes to accuse you of all the things you've done wrong, guess what? He's right. He's right. I can't deny my sinfulness. I can't deny my unfaithfulness. And neither can you. And so our confidence cannot be put there. 
But if you're trusting in Christ alone, we are not defined by what he's telling us. We are not defined by our sinfulness. We're defined by our relationship with Christ and his sacrifice. And so we can boldly say to Satan, you can say, you may be right about me. All those things that you're telling me I've screwed up, I have. You are right about those things. But I've been purchased by the blood of Christ and I belong to him now. We can tell him I've been saved from death's penalty. I've been saved from sin's power and I one day will be saved forever from sin's presence, all because of Christ. Lastly, in verse 17, we come to the sword of the Spirit. Now, if you've been paying attention, you may have heard this before, but this is the only offensive weapon that's listed here. It's the only thing that we actually charge forward with. We're told the other pieces are there to help us stand firm against the devil, but this one has a different purpose. This one puts us on the offensive. I think back to some of my readings in school, and we read excerpts of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody read some of that? They've got some newer editions that are not written in the old old English that are easier to get through. Reading it through in the original language is like walking through a muddy field. Now, you can do it, but man, it's tough. It's tough going. It's hard work. But I'd encourage you, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, pick it up. It's an amazing allegory, and it mirrors... A lot of biblical principles. It's great. But in your notes, there's one section. The main character's name is Christian, appropriately. And he comes against this hideous beast called Apollyon. And it's in the Valley of Humiliation that he encounters him. And it says this. It says, Poor Christian was hard put to it, for he had gone but a little way before he saw a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. His name is Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid. And to cast in his mind whether to go back or whether to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back. And therefore thought that to turn the back to Apollyon might give him greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore, he resolved to stay and stand his ground. You see what that's illustrating here? All the other pieces of the armor go on the front of your body. We're not given protection for the back, I think pretty obviously, because we're not called to run away from the battle. Christian knew that his best course of action was not to run away where he was going to be exposed, but to stand his ground and face his enemy head on. And if you read through that part of the story, I'll just kind of give you a little spoiler alert. He beats him, not without being injured though. But were it not for Christ... And the Spirit of God in believers, this kind of a stand against the enemy would be absolutely foolish. Because we have nothing to stand on but Christ himself. We have no weapon to go at him with but the word of God. And so if we're going into the battle, as I quoted a friend last week, if we're going into the battle on our own strength, we've lost already from the beginning. And while Satan is no match for God, brothers and sisters, be assured of that. Satan is no match for God. He has power in this world today. He is deceitful and he is a fierce foe. But we sang a song last week called The Mighty Fortress is Our God. by Martin Luther, I don't know if you remember the words from that song. But at one of the verses, it's just talking about our foe, the enemy. And it says, one little word shall fell him. You know what that word is? It's Jesus. That little word isn't really little at all. It's the all-powerful name of Jesus Christ. Every knee is going to bow to Christ. That includes the devil. 
So the sword of the spirit, this is an offensive weapon, and I think that should mean something to us. It means that believers will engage the enemy. It doesn't matter if you live in Vanuatu or Romania or India or Kansas City or St. Louis or Clarksville. You and I as Christians will engage the enemy. And not just as a statement of fact, but this is a statement of encouragement, of spurring us on. If we're not engaging the enemy in any areas of our lives, what are we doing? We're going with the flow, which is not the place for Christians to be. There will be moments when we engage the enemy. And remember what we talked about last week. Let me temper it with this. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. So we're not engaging people. We're engaging spiritual forces. So don't take up your sword to strike down another person. That's not its intent. Using the Bible as a weapon against someone is not the intent of God's word. But we pick it up and engage the enemy who is our enemy, Satan. So I don't know if you guys, if you guys ever watched that show, I forget what channel, maybe the history channel is called Forged in Fire. Have you seen that show? We catch it every once in a while, but these guys are given a hunk of metal and they're given a few hours to turn it into this incredible sword. And I was watching one time and they did, their challenge was to make a broadsword. You guys ever seen a broadsword? You ever seen the movie Braveheart? I think maybe those things are a little bit exaggerated because those swords are huge. I don't know how they would lift those with one arm riding on a, on a horse ever. But I don't even think the idea of Paul in saying the sword of the spirit, I don't think it's a broad sword at all. I think he's talking about more of a, a, a larger dagger or a smaller sword. Do you know why? Why this is important? Because the battle is hand-to-hand combat. We're not shooting bullets and missiles at the enemy. It's close quarter fighting, brothers and sisters. It's right here. It's in your family. It's in the church. It's in the school. It's in our elections. It's close quarters. And so Paul says, use this weapon well. Use it appropriately. This means that if we're advancing in the battle, if we're making a stand in the strength and armor of the Lord, we're not going to be able to avoid conflict with the enemy. It's going to get personal. Sometimes it might even get ugly. But there's something else here that I hope will bring us peace and assurance. Who does Paul say this sword belongs to? It's not your sword. It doesn't say, take up the sword of Alex or take up the sword of Rod. Take up the sword of the Spirit. (laughs) This this sword belongs to the Spirit of God. It's not our sword. It's His. And Paul equates this with something. He says, this is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. That's significant here. It's the Word of God. There's a... A comedy movie that probably most of you haven't seen, and that's probably a good thing. It's called Major Pain. Okay. In that movie, he's got a military background, and at one point, he's hanging upside down in a doorway, blindfolded, taking apart and putting back together his his service pistol. And he does it really fast, because he's so familiar with that weapon that he can put it together, blindfolded, upside down. He's so familiar with it. You see where I'm going with this? We have to be so familiar with God's word that we can use it even when we're injured, even when things aren't ideal. So that means, I'm just going to state the obvious here, that means we have to read it. We just have to. 
more than we do now. Because the, the question is always asked, well, how, you know, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, how long? I, I can't answer that question for you, but I can give you some advice. Probably 10 to 15 minutes longer than you're doing it now would be good. But we have to read it. We have to meditate on it. We have to understand it. We have to memorize it. We have to pray it back to God. We have to proclaim it to everyone else. The power of the Spirit is what makes the Word of God effective and powerful. It's the Spirit, brothers and sisters. You've probably heard this verse from Isaiah 55, verse 11, but it brings us so much comfort and confidence here that we need to read it. So will my word be, which goes out of my mouth. It will not come back to me with nothing done, but it will give effect to my purpose and do that for which I have sent it. If we are proclaiming the word of God, God will accomplish everything he wants to from it. Not my opinion, not your opinion, but when we proclaim the word, the truth of the word of God of the gospel, God uses it exactly how he wants. You can take confidence in that. Even when you say, I don't know what to say but I'll just share this little bit of scripture. That's enough. That's a good place to start. It is effective and powerful. I can stand up here and I can tell you the most moving story of something to where we're all in tears. And you know what? If the spirit's not in it, we just got emotional for no reason. It doesn't mean anything. The word of God is powerful. Not my words and not yours. One last thing here. And this kind of sets us up for where we want to go next week as we finish the book of Ephesians. Paul uses the, the term word. When he says the word of God, his, his word for word in the Greek is logos. He, that's the word he typically uses. And he uses it like 97 times in all of his writings in the New Testament. But that's not the word he uses here. He uses a different word for word in the Greek, rima, R-H-E-M-A. It's used only 11 times in his writings. And really, these words are almost synonymous, but rima means something more specific. Rima means, literally, an utterance, something spoken out loud. Sometimes logos does too, but rima always means that. Now, connect this with verses 19 and 20. Go ahead and look in chapter 6 of Ephesians, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, he's saying, praying also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Do you see why he used that Greek word now? Paul's saying that Christians are not only going to be known for what they do. We will be. Paul has already said in chapter 2, and we talked about it in Sunday school this morning in the adult class, that we were created for good works. Chapter 2 of Ephesians. We are, but we won't only be known for our good works. Brothers and sisters, we will be known for what we say, what we utter, what we speak out loud. So we are not only called to live out our faith, we're called to speak about it. As we speak the truth of the gospel, the power of the Spirit does the work in making it effective for God's purposes. That's the confidence that we have. The tools that God has given believers make us bold in speaking truth with our neighbors. And we speak the truth in the darkness so that all those who are held captive by the evil one might be set free. That's why we speak. That's why we cannot just only say, well, my actions will be all the evidence that's needed. They do. 
Actions speak louder than words. That old saying may be true, but we cannot leave it there. We have to speak the truth of the gospel to our neighbors. What a time that we're in to be able to do that now. Because the Christian life is about both living the gospel and speaking the gospel. We have to do both. You know, we teach our kids this, that every Christian is a missionary. Because every Christian should be speaking the truth about God to his neighbor, to her neighbor, to her classmate, to her friends. Adults, we do the same thing. If you're a Christian today, let me just ask you this. Does that describe you? This is not for to make you feel guilty if you're not in, in the least bit. But does this describe you? Are you someone who is living out the gospel as well as speaking it? Because if you just have one without the other, if you just have the faith without the works, something's wrong. If you only say you believe and then you go out and live other, something's wrong. But if you just live it but you never say it, there's something wrong. We have to speak. Are you engaged in the battle, believer? Are you standing your ground with the tools and the strength of the Lord? Or are you still trying to do it all yourself? That doesn't work. And I think you know that. I know that. I still fall into this. We need to turn away from trusting ourselves and to pick up faith like a shield today. This scripture should also make clear whether you are following Jesus or not. This should reveal your salvation or not. Because you can't be equipped in the armor of the Lord if you are serving a different master. You see what I'm saying? If you're serving the God of this age, then you cannot be clad with the armor of God. In fact, I would say that if you aren't engaged in the battle for the Lord, you're engaged in the battle against Him. Do you feel that way? Do you feel at odds with God? Like maybe you're his enemy? Like you're fighting against him? If you do feel this way, you're probably not alone. And you're certainly not beyond hope. But it's going to require some things of you. It's going to require that you have to lay down your pride. Which may be the hardest thing of all. But you're going to have to lay down your pride. You're going to have to put your total and complete trust in the blood of Christ. And you're going to have to be reconciled to God. But here's the thing. If he's prompting that in you right now, that's the Spirit of God moving. Don't shut it out. Don't deny it. Listen and respond in faith. And I'd encourage you as the worship team comes to lead us in one last song together. I'd encourage you to come down to the front. If you need prayer, I'll be standing right here. I'd be happy to sit and pray with you. If you'd like to come and grab me after church or text me in the next couple of days, I would be happy to come and meet with you. And we'll walk through God's word together. Because his, his word is what's powerful, right? This is what is our solid ground, our solid footing in this day and age. So I'd encourage you to be reconciled with God. And if you have been, brothers and sisters, live it out. And speak it out. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the armor. And Lord, I don't know that we need to, to get up and pray it on every day necessarily, Lord. But we certainly need to understand and be aware of the fact that we are in a battle right now. And that we have a very, very real enemy who does not like us. Because we represent something that he hates. The image of God.
And so I pray that my brothers and sisters would be bold as they go out in your armor and in your strength, not in their own, that they'd be bold to lead people in understanding how to have peace with a holy God, how to have peace in the midst of difficult times in our day and age. We can have confidence and hope all because of Christ. We thank you for him and we pray these things in his name. Amen.